0: We'll go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. As we open our Bibles to Exodus, I remind you that we do not lay aside our Christian knowledge to enter into Israelite history, but we follow our Lord's example, who, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He explained to those disciples on the road to Emmaus all the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Concluding with our confession that the infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places than that speak more clearly which recognizes that history is his story. And so we look to the author of all scripture to teach us what he intended to show forth. We also keep close the gracious commitment of the Lord to Abraham to provide a numerous people to fill a good land And this was a means unto a greater heavenly end where Abraham's true descendants will populate a new heavens and a new earth through his promised offspring. And so we find ourselves in what's considered the prologue to the Exodus, this prologue to Israel's redemption out of the house of slavery in Egypt towards Sinai. This ultimately leads to the Lord making his home among the Israelites after making a covenant with them. And as we will eventually get there, and I'll just cast a, a small stone in that direction, we'll see that this dwelling among the Israelites is veiled. It's, it's incomplete in many ways because it's restricted. Not, they don't come freely to the Lord And so it comes with anticipation. Exodus is anticipatory of a greater exodus, a true Israel, a true dwelling of the Lord with his people. And so it's with great joy that we come to Exodus this morning and read of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his redemption of his people out of darkness and into light. Follow along as I read for us Exodus chapter 1. I'll begin in verse 15 and I will read through chapter 2, verse 10. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphora and the other was named Pua, of whom, oh, excuse me, and he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth st- stool, If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter, you are to keep alive. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch, and then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens making, walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the boy was crying and she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. The Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help again this morning. Oh Lord, we give you praise for your word this morning, for it is a special revelation to us of yourself and specially of Christ our Lord and his redemption of his people. Open our hearts and our eyes to this truth this morning by your spirit. And even further so, Lord, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, something exciting this morning is that we get to talk about mothers. The Lord has a different calendar, I suppose. For today in Exodus is Mother's Day. And it is with great. Joy that we come and we read about such mothers as these midwives and Moses's mother and even Pharaoh's daughter who becomes an adoptive mother. But before we get there, it's it seems that we should start with children. And when it comes to young children, I think the most common fear is fear of the dark. I never liked the dark as a child. And growing up in Fraser Park, it would get extra dark without the light of the city around us. It would get extra dark at night, and uh, we would often take time, or we would often get invited to uh, stay in a small little, well, it wasn't that small, but in a playhouse in the backyard. The boy I grew up with uh, two brothers and a sister, and, and we would go sleep in this playhouse. And often it was just me and my older brother at the time. My younger brother and sister were too young to do so. But we would sleep in this playhouse, exposed to the elements, in the dark. And even as a, sec- a third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade child, I didn't really like it that much, but there was enough boys around that you felt a little a little safe My dad did not help my fear of the dark, because one night he came and he started making some noises. And if you know Fraser Park, uh, there's bears, and so he sounded like a bear. And he shook that playhouse like a bear. And I'm not going to lie, I wanted my mother. He revealed himself to us with great laughter and as I quickly concluded, I don't think bears laugh, uh, I didn't join him in his humor. But it is something that is common to children, but what about us adults? We don't like the dark of night. We, don't, we may not be scared of the dark of night, but the darkness of, t- of the times, the darkness of trials the darkness of sadness, all these things can often fear us, be fearful to us as adults. And we as children of God can often be afraid of the dark, because the darkness of, is our lack of knowledge of the future. We just don't know what's out there. Ligon Duncan says that the people of God, just like us today, Uh, in speaking of the Israelites, don't always have a clue what God is doing in their lives. That, of course, is a key for us as we cope with God's providence, because part of God's providence is to trust in him when the lights are out. The people of God had to learn that in Exodus, as Job had to learn it, and as we have to learn it. And so we will see this morning just, just that in our passage, that All along the history of redemption, God is displaying that he is the one who brings life from death. The one who defeats the darkness and can be trusted by faith. So this morning, I want us to see that all along the history of redemption, God is displaying that he is the one who brings life from death. And so he is the one who defeats the darkness and can be trusted by faith. We'll address This theme under three headings, old patterns, ordinary conquerors, and outworking faith. So, old patterns, ordinary conquerors, and outworking faith. Old patterns are something that as we read our Bibles, we see that there are patterns of uh, themes that get repeated over and over again in Scripture. And one of the oldest patterns is that the struggle on earth is not merely one of flesh and blood. And even as we went through Ephesians, we learned that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. And so as we read scripture, though it's not always addressed, it is there. It is underlying and undergirding the reality of the story. It's the story of the struggle between Satan to thwart the purposes of God and God in his sovereignty to bring about blessing to his people, and indeed to the whole earth. We see this chiefly and beginning in Genesis 3, where the Lord, in cursing the serpent, says, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And that this is not related to our fear of snakes, but this is related to the seed, those in league with the evil one, those who take his influence, those who uh, even in in some instances may take pos- he may take possession of, but we find that it is a war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and so this plays out in Exodus one before us this morning, and within that, as we see that the death the the Uh, spiritual death that Adam and Eve bring about, out of that, the Lord produces life. And the means by that we know is is the sacrifice that he makes of of the animal to cover their skins as a symbolism that, that they must have a greater sacrifice in order to overcome this eternal death. But then in the next chapter we find that out of that death, the Lord brings life. And Seth is born. And they're wondering is, or excuse me, out of the tragedy of Cain and Abel, Seth is born. And Adam and Eve say, and this is a son provided by God. In other words, the Lord is continuing his promises. He's continuing to fill his promise. To bring about a seed of the woman, to crush the head of the serpent. Well, this theme of death to life is throughout this section also. We have first the death of the Israelites' freedom by the edict of Pharaoh, which only produces life within the tribe. We saw that earlier in chapter 1, verse 12. The more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. Then Pharaoh increases his wicked agenda and attempts to employ the help of the Hebrew midwives, who were supposed to kill the newborn males, but instead... The midwives, fearing God, did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded, but let the boys live out of death into life. The midwives themselves are instructive. It's aptly observed that the midwives highlighted were probably chief midwives or senior midwives, which would have meant that they were older, barren women. And so we see that their dead wounds were brought to life by the Lord in verse 20. So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty because the midwives feared God. He established households for them. Their barren wombs, out of the death of their womb, now comes new life. And they increase by their own wombs, they increase the numbers of the Israelites. And finally... Moses himself was cast into the Nile, put at the mercy of the river, as good as dead, his parents not having any stated plan for his well-being. But out of his, tin- out of his tiny water coffin, he lives, not only in his home, but then in a palace as one theologian makes the connection that this ark, like Noah's, will become the vehicle through which God rescues the righteous from watery destruction, foils the plans of the wicked, and creates a new nation in the midst of the old. This I, theme of, of death to life is an old pattern in Scripture. We see it even fully in the evil one's plan to put Christ in the grave. See, the evil one is uh, cunning, but he's not very original. For in our narrative this morning, we find that he influences the Pharaoh who uh, by his fallen will acquiesces to his desire to put to death the sons of Israel. Why? Because it's uh, assumed that it's probable that Joseph would have shared the revelation given to Abraham to Pharaoh's Pharaoh's household because they would have wondered about him and his family and, and these travels and the travails of them, and he probably would have told them God had promised to provide An offspring. God had promised to grow uh, this people into a mighty nation. So Pharaoh may have known of God's promises. And if Pharaoh didn't know, Satan knew. Satan knew the plan of the Lord to provide a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And so Satan tries to put to death the sons of Israel to undo God's redemptive plan. We, saw, we see this repeated in the Gospels when Herod takes up Satan's mantle of genocide or infanticide and seeks to put to death every male child two years old and under, seeking to put to death the one by whom the redemption of the world would come. And having thwarted that plan, Satan continues his tirade and finally puts Christ in the grave, only to find that his endeavor to do so produces eternal life for God's people. This idea of death to life is throughout our section, it's throughout our scriptures, and we see it fully realized in Christ our Lord. Surely the sufferings and death of Christ are pictured here for us in Ephesians chapter one. We see that all along the history of redemption, God is displaying that he is the one who brings life to death. He does use means to do so. He has ordained the ends and the means. And the means in which he uses here in Ephesians 1 are ordinary conquerors. Last week I read from Isaiah 40, which displays God's sovereign rule over all his creation, even the wicked nations and their rulers, turn with me to a like passage in Psalm 2. We know this well, but it's helpful for us to be reminded often, especially in light of our passage this morning and certainly in light of the day and age we live in. Why are the nations in an uproar, the word of the Lord says, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy hill. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten to you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Oh, this testimony to God's divine authority through the divine Son. And so we see here that there may be a question in the minds of the Israelites and in the minds of us this morning, as we have many things that stand against us, we may ask, who will overcome our enemies who will overthrow the darkness. We know the answer. Our triune God. God, by signaling through the oppression of the Jews and the life of Moses, he signals that he will overcome our enemies. He actually is signaling that he has overcome our enemies in Christ. The question, though, is how will he do it? He's going to over, he has overcome our enemies in Christ. We can say, how did he do it? But in the minds of the Israelites, there may be a question of, we know we're going to be delivered. How is he going to deliver us from Pharaoh? The answer from our passage is, he will do it in an unexpected way. But he will do it in this way, in an unexpected way, though in, an, in ordinary or using ordinary conquerors. He does it through death. He will bring life. Moreover, he will do it through unexpected means, ordinary lives prepared by faith in a faithful God. 1 John 4, 4, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Paul says we are more than conquerors. Sometimes we think that means that we're charging out into the streets. We're overthrowing uh, governments. Were, we're taking over towns. Were, we're installing politicians. That's not what happens in Exodus. It's not what happens in the Gospels. It's not what happens in the early church. So we can look to the midwives of Israel and see faithful followers who up until the decree of Pharaoh only intended to serve God in their station. Before it was pressed before him, before them that they should murder infant boys, they were Hebrew midwives doing midwife things. They were just living their ordinary life. Though as a testimony to how this played out, it is to be assumed that they lived their lives in faith to God. It says that they feared God. We never know when we'll be called upon to uphold truth, but the answer will not be in the moment. The answer will not be in the moment, but in the many moments, days, months, and years leading up to it. And these women, by God's providence and grace, were made a part of what is later said in Exodus chapter 12, verse 37. Eighty years later, this is what it says about Israel. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot aside from children. We don't understand the effects. We can't know in our finite brains what simple faithfulness God is going to use for his greater purposes and his glory. But here in the midwives, in their faithful service to God as midwives, and then on a grand stage where they're summoned by Pharaoh, commanded by the highest ruler of the land and probably the known world, that they should do something. They do not do it. God uses that. Not that he didn't intend for it or it was unexpected, but he meant to use these ordinary means to bring about 600,000 men on foot. Pharaoh intended to end those, that lineage in Exodus 1. We see it also in the ordinary love of Moses' parents who committed to keep their son in defiance to a powerful ruler. Roberts and Wilson say when Pharaoh is building cities, an Israelite woman is building a tiny, unimpressive little ark for a child to be thrown into the water. Yet this ark, like Noah's, will become the vehicle through which God rescues the righteous from watery destruction, foils the plans of the wicked, and creates a new nation in the midst of the old. Consider the ordinary love of Moses' parents. They look upon their son, and they love him, and they do what parents ought to do. They, uh, they seek the well-being of their son, but they commit him to the Lord. And the Lord uses this uh, wonderful symbolism where he's put in an ark in the Nile, which for the Egyptians, they had uh, their own gods of the Nile. And so, in other words, they put him potentially in harm's way of that God, and yet the Lord uses their ordinary love to do something extraordinary, to to save Moses, to bring about the exodus itself. These ordinary conquerors were not set up in an instant they were set up in days and months and years of ordinary faithful living it's what the lord says in matthew chapter 6 that it's it's enough the troubles of today are enough let us be faithful with what the lord has given us now for we know not what the Lord will do 80 years from now. But we see that this this working that these ordinary conquerors do comes not out of a place of their own established righteousness, for, as we'll see, the midwives don't act completely upright or honest, but it comes out of faith. It comes as an outworking Of faith. The midwives acted in the fear of God. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you see their fear of the Lord provided them wisdom when Pharaoh asked them to do such a heinous thing? What wisdom was necessary for these women to interact with Pharaoh, to whom it was said that he descended from the sun itself? And yet they maneuvered tactfully, and yet all the way intended to disobey the wicked edict. What wisdom they displayed, and we see that their wisdom was because they feared God, because they had reverence. For God because they trusted him and his promises. As I said, this doesn't necessarily ex- excuse their further actions. I tend to agree with Calvin that whatever is opposed to the nature of God is sinful, and on this ground all dissimulation, whether in word or deed, is condemned. Wherefore, both points must be admitted that the two women lied. And since lying is displeasing to God, that they sinned. For as in estimating the conduct of saints, we should be just and humane interpreters. In other words, as we look upon these women, we shouldn't look at them with disdain. And so, tis, 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 they should not have lied. No, we can, with just and humane, uh, look about it and, and have compassion about their status and their place. And know that scripture doesn't commend them for their falsehood, it commends them for their faith, for their fear of God. But just in the same way that we are to be just and humane interpreters, Calvin says, so also superstitious zeal must be avoided in covering their faults, since this would often infringe on the direct authority of scripture. And indeed, whensoever the faithful fall into sin, they desire not to be lifted out of it by false defenses. If if they died in faith they don't care about the concerns of this world they're consumed in the glory of god but speculatively if they could think about it they would say no don't don't prop us up as amazing women who never sinned don't give us false defenses Calvin continues, for their justification consists in a simple and free demand of pardon for their sins. It is their, they are, if they're justified before God, they are justified by faith alone, and they need not our false defenses, for we are the same. Let us repent of when we engage in such dissimulations, but let us with joy know that it is covered once and for all by the blood of Christ, and so also these Hebrew midwives, if they held to God by faith. We are taught by Hebrews 11 about Moses' parents. Hebrews 11, 23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Moses's parents acted in faith. What was what was the faith that Moses's parents had? Well, it they had in in a way, they had a particular faith, and it's uh presumed that the faith they actually possessed was in God's revelation or in God who revelates himself. Cuz in Acts 7:20, it further helps us understand this, especially as it relates to uh, him being a beautiful child. In Acts 7.20, it says, it was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God. The beauty that his parents beheld was a beauty as one who the Lord has revealed his desire to do something. That it would, they had some understanding that the Lord was going to do something with this child. The beauty that he had was not his beautiful infancy. The beauty he had is that he was chosen by God as lovely, for, set apart for his purposes. So we see that the outworking of Moses' parents was one of faith. They set Moses about in the river by faith. They committed him to Pharaoh's household by faith. He was only three years old. I have 12-year-olds that I don't like out of my house. As we look at this, we can say, but look at all what the Lord did. Look at the exodus. Look at the redemption of Christ!" Oh, what a beauty it is for us to be able to look back from our perspective and see history playing out, but let us not overlook the hand of God within it and the moments that made up that history. Moitre says, For 400 years is easy to look back on and to say quickly than to live through. Nevertheless, the Lord had promised, I will go down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back again. And the divine promise keeper works out his moral government of the world with perfect justice, endless patience, and according to his own timetable. Let us in our day and age hold that the divine promise keeper works out his moral government of the world with perfect justice, endless patience, and according to his own timetable. We can see that all along the history of redemption, God is displaying that he is the one who brings life from death. He is the one who defeats the darkness through the means of ordinary conquerors and can be trusted by faith so that we may work in the good works that God has prepared beforehand. I'll close with this quote from Alistair Begg. He says, as the narrative of this grand story continues to unfold, and as each of our lives contributes to little portions to the plot, we can press on in hope. If you are feeling that life is not the gladsome, joyous, sorrowless experience that the scriptures promise, remember this. This is not meant to be it. There is better ahead, and one day soon the Lord will be king over all the earth. For now we must wait and serve and hope, for we will not be waiting forever. Let's pray. O Lord, we thank you for this word that you have given to us by your Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for the lives of the Israelites whom you worked through. And so, recorded for us this testimony of your faithfulness to your promises, this testimony to your governance of the world, this testimony of your endless patience. Oh, Lord, help us. Give us the faith to persevere. Give us the faith that works for your glory alone resting in your righteousness alone we praise you we ask these things in Christ's name Amen